0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you
1: did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.
2: It is Monday, October 11th, 2021. It's a new broadcast week unfolding before our very eyes and ears. Here on The Guy Benson Show, I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you so much for tuning in every day. We air Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time and on demand around the clock at no charge to you on the podcast at GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We always urge you and encourage you to listen live as the show airs between 3 and 6. You can do that through a whole variety of options, which are laid out at GuyBensonShow.com or on our great affiliates across the country We just thank you for listening no matter how you listen. If you don't know me, I'm political editor at townhall.com. I'm a Fox News contributor. Busy weekend, co-hosting the big show on Fox News Channel Saturday and Sunday, and then back at it here on the radio with a big week ahead. Here's what we have on the show today. Mark Teeson, Fox News contributor, columnist at The Washington Post, former presidential speechwriter. He will join us later this hour. Juan Williams back here at the top of the next hour. We'll get his perspective on a few things from a left-leaning perspective. We always like having a little bit of disagreement from time to time here on the show. I think it keeps things interesting. And in our final hour, Dr. Nicole Sapphire is back. I want to ask her about the latest pronouncement from Dr. Fauci and what could be a game changer in the battle against COVID with a new drug That is looking extremely promising, although it looks like in the early going, the government is sort of blowing it on this, if you can believe it. I know, right? Also, I just want to mention we are going to have a memorable Woke Tales segment on this show today. I mean, the Woke Tales stories are coming at us at such a clip that I decided to roll them all into one segment as opposed to spreading them out over the course of the week because I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We might need that. Real estate here on the show to do new woke tales. The woke stuff is completely bananas. We're just all collectively losing our minds. Speaking of which, my mind was blown and not in a good way by the new James Bond movie, which we were hyping in a significant way last week on the show. I could not wait to see it. The big national premiere was Friday night. I had my tickets in advance. We went. And I have thoughts. I will share the thoughts, but no spoilers. I, ooh, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to give spoilers and to argue about those spoilers, but I'm not going to do that to you. I have to maintain some restraint here. But I will try to convey as much as I can without ruining major plot points and major developments. That's in the home stretch at the end of the show today. Let's begin with a Fox News alert. Stats on COVID. The case count of coronavirus cases, this is confirmed through tests across the United States throughout the entire pandemic, 44.3 million, with the actual number several times higher than that. The death toll now is up to 713,806 Americans who have died with or of COVID. The Dow is off today, 145 points at this hour. Currently trading at $34,601. Let's talk about the border, which I feel an obligation to do. And actually, it was interesting. Earlier today, we were doing our show planning meeting, as we always do. And Quiet Wyatt, our associate producer, brought this point up saying there's almost like a fatigue around the border crisis where – It gets covered in fits and starts. There's a whole bunch of attention paid to it because something awful has happened. And then everyone kind of loses interest and moves on to the next thing. And then there's another disaster down there, right? Numbers get released or something like what happened in Del Rio. And then, it's okay, all right, we're back to this briefly. Then it's off to the next thing. And it's been this herky-jerky pattern of coverage across most of the media. The coverage has not been positive because there's no way to spin this. There just isn't. The spin efforts from the White House have been unbelievably feeble and weak and insulting. And so the media has, you know, covered it relatively negatively because there's no other way to do it. They've just been kind of letting the news cycle move on. But I think it's part of our responsibility here to try to consistently cover it because the news continues. I know for some people you might say, oh, you know, gosh, here we go, another segment about the border crisis. As long as the crisis is ongoing and in fact getting worse on a number of key fronts, I think turning a blind eye to it is a huge disservice not just to the people who are directly affected by it, not the least of which, by the way, are the men and women in Border Patrol who are fighting valiantly but in a largely – futile effort to get this thing under control because they do not have the support of the administration when it comes down to it. In fact, they have the contempt of the administration in which they serve, right? When you have a president willing to embrace smears and lies, and that has gone uncorrected on the record, all the whip stuff that has, that stands that has stood on the record, no correction, no apology. I wonder what happened to that whole investigation. Number Biden declared himself outraged and everyone horrified was the buzzword. Whips, whips, whips. And then it turned out there were no whips. People said, no, what are you actually horrified by? And he said, look, they're going to pay. Here's the deal. They're going to pay. And there's an investigation. Do we have any update on that? If and when they are cleared, which they should be based on what we actually saw with our eyes, then what? I would imagine nothing. That's my prediction. Because that was all political. The whole thing's political. So what am I going to bring to you here on the border today that is new? Well, it is now official. The Biden administration has announced that they are formally ending and dissolving the border wall contract moving forward. We know that they had already paused it. They want nothing to do with the wall because that's a Trump thing. Doesn't matter if it's needed doesn't matter if a wall would help and would work significantly, especially in high-traffic areas that have been completely overrun by illegal immigrants. It doesn't matter. That is irrelevant. It is, as I just said a moment ago, all about politics. So they paused it, and now it is officially done. We learned last week that the U.S. taxpayer was spending about $5 million a day not to build the wall. And now it is official. It's not going to get built, even though the contracts that are being dissolved have still paid out a huge amount of money. Construction items have been purchased, supplies. And now it's just going to sit there. While the immigration crisis continues unabated and unmitigated, with some concerns that August will look like child's play compared to October— we know that there are tens of thousands of illegal immigrants en route right now to these exact same places. And what the Biden administration is saying as loudly as possible, even as they also say, "Oh, the borders closed, the borders secure, don't come. The border wall is not going to happen. And they've now made sure that that is the policy of the United States federal government. Bill Malugin, our colleague, who has been down at the border reporting on all of this. He joined us late last week. He was at the border earlier and he posted a few of these clips. Listen, for example, to Cut 20 when he talks about this new development, courtesy of the Biden administration. Is one location where a bunch of the steel that was supposed to go towards the border wall has just been sitting out in the open, baking in the sun and rusting ever since January.
3: I'm told there are about 10,000 of these wall panels just sitting here. This is in far Texas. Each panel worth about $5,000. You can do the math upwards of $50 million just sitting there going to absolute waste. Keep in mind, taxpayers
2: have already paid for this. It's bought and paid for, and nothing is happening with it. He goes on and cut 21. I'm told by a federal source they bought enough steel for more than 100 miles of wall down here. Only about 14 was built before President Biden halted all construction. And now it's canceled. So the cancel culture has come for the border wall. And I understand that on a political level, it's almost like this religious belief, this incantation. We will not build the wall. Trump wanted the wall. Therefore, we're against it. Well, how's that working? When Chris Wallace asked the question of the DHS secretary on Fox News Sunday a few weeks ago, wouldn't a physical barrier be helpful In some of these places, and his answer was, we don't do it because we don't do it. We won't build the wall because building the wall is against our policy. It's just this circular argument that does not appeal at all to factual information or to relevant logistical considerations, efficacy, anything like that. It's just their decision rooted entirely in the politics of it. Which reminds me sort of of a lot of their COVID policy and their Afghanistan policy and the list goes on. Politics up and down in this administration just rife through the decision-making processes, terrible, consequential, chaos-causing, crisis-fueling decisions made by a president who is supposed to be the pro-empiricism unifying adult in the room who would bring back norms and compromise and get things done. Well, obviously, that has all been exposed many times over. It'd be one thing if the border crisis were at least diminished or significantly under control, maybe not totally solved. Not sure we'll ever totally solve it. But if they had gotten their arms around this thing in a pretty major way, they could say, see, we didn't need the wall. So we're not going to move forward. Maybe we can repurpose the steel for something else. I don't know. Instead, it's just sitting there listening to what Bill Malugin reported is crazy making. As a taxpayer, as someone who supports American law and American sovereignty, it is crazy making. I think it would be a bad decision even if the crisis had been at least brought to a level that is more reasonable And able to be dealt with. Instead, it is escalating. The problem is getting worse. And in the middle of the problem getting worse, with all the terrible incentives being broadcast all over the world, which is why we've had people from over 150 countries show up at the southern border looking to exploit it, and they have. That is when they decide to announce that they are canceling the wall that was scheduled to be built. Sorry, taxpayers. And you're welcome, illegal immigrants. On top of that, even though they were handed this gift wrapped present, a political lifeline, as I've called it, from the Supreme Court that ruled six to three, that terminating the remain in Mexico policy, which was a Trump policy, the way Biden terminated it, they said was not lawful. And instead of the White House saying, "Okay, we can actually stop this problem or at least really bring down the border crisis. By putting Remain in Mexico back in place, re-implementing it, we can blame the justices on the Supreme Court, right? We can use that as a live issue and an excuse for our base, but we can also stop infuriating most Americans and maybe stop the bleeding on illegal immigration in the border crisis where we're getting hammered politically. But instead, that is not what they have done. They have challenged it further. They're fighting it on and on in court. They are trying to find new ways to keep the remain in Mexico policy terminated, even though it was, I would say, unambiguously successful under Trump. Now, part of this is just politics and them being recalcitrant and reflexive and knee jerk and wanting to cancel anything that Trump wanted. That is part of this. But the cynical side of me does wonder, is there not perhaps – an intentional, deliberate strategy here, right? We've got major inflation. The Democrats say, let's spend trillions more. We've got weak, underperforming jobs numbers and GDP growth. The Democrats say, let's tax job creators more. Let's make the cost of creating jobs more expensive. Like these are sort of the opposite things of what you would want to do on any sort of sane level, or at least not punish, right? Do no harm. When it comes to the border, you might say, all right, maybe a few new barriers would be worthwhile. Maybe remain in Mexico. Let's just maybe hang on to that. I know it'll tick off some of our activists, but it's worth it in the larger scheme of things to get the problem under control. And we would potentially have a political benefit by doing so. But instead, they are doing the opposite of the rational thing on all of these fronts. Why? I don't think that they you know, hate America and want to destroy the country. I think that rhetoric gets way overheated. I do think that the Democratic base and the Democratic Party in general is absolutely not committed to securing the border or to immigration laws in general. I think that they are predisposed to believe that let's let anyone who wants to come in here basically come in here and we'll sort it out eventually with a mass amnesty – And we'll get a bunch of voters. I think that that is absolutely driving some of the calculation among some of them. And it is cynical and it is so unacceptable. Most Americans reject it. And yet here it is playing out before our very eyes every single day. Remain in Mexico terminated. Border wall terminated. No end in sight. I saw the secretary of state blathering again about root causes. We're going to go fix the root causes in 150 countries, Mr. Secretary? Well, they say, well, what about Haiti? The root causes in Haiti? Most of the people who just came in from Haiti to our southern border, through our southern border, already had refugee status in Chile and Brazil. Are we going to go to the root causes in those countries as well? It is just laughable. It is not realistic or serious at all. They've got their buzzwords and they've got... Their actions. And illegal immigrants from across the world are getting the message loud and clear. We've got to step aside. We'll take a quick break. Just getting started a new week here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. Stay with us.
4: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, I'm Ben Dominich, publisher of the Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back on the Guy
2: Benson show. So there were some top officials from the Biden team meeting with their Mexican counterparts to try to figure out something involving border policy. They could have just gone back to remain in Mexico, which is working well. But you know who wasn't there, who wasn't part of the conversation? The borders are. Our Vice President Kamala Harris, which raises this question. Where in the world is-
4: Kamala Harris.
2: <laughs> not meeting with Mexican officials, not down at the border. Our Vice President instead was hanging out with. Some school kids in New Jersey. She went to a bakery. She had other school kids over to the Naval Observatory to talk about space. This was, just listen to her talking to these kids in cut 11.
1: To think about so much that's out there that we still have to learn. Like, I love that.
5: I love that. And so I'm very excited about the Space Council. We're going to learn so much um, as we increasingly, I think, are curious and interested in the potential for the discoveries and the work we can do in space. So
0: that's one of the things I'm
2: most excited
0: about.
2: Cringe. She was, uh, shall we say, high on life during that conversation with the kid. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just
4: want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share.
2: While other adults, I guess, were having conversations about her issue, the border. Maybe it's for the best that she wasn't down there because she's not demonstrating a lot of competency on these issues, is she?
4: The Guy Benson Show continues next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to FoxNewsPodcasts.com. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
2: Back on this Monday, it's The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free. And we are happy to welcome back to the airwaves Mark Thiessen, columnist at The Washington Post, Fox News contributor, fellow at AEI. He was the chief speechwriter to President George W. Bush. He now anchors a podcast called What the Hell is Going On? Making Sense of the World. And Mark, I find myself asking that question almost on a daily basis. What the hell is going on? It's good to have you back here.
3: It's good to be back in DKI.
2: I want to start with this before we get into some of the details on Afghanistan and a few of the developments there. The Republican National Committee just sent out from their research shop an email with a few facts. Here's one of them. President Biden, the commander in chief, has not answered a single question about Afghanistan in 31 days. Here's another one. Only one time in the last month has he fielded any questions at all on the border crisis. Two quick back-to-back questions in passing. And that's it. I mean Afghanistan is still an unfolding crisis. There are thousands of Americans that are still trapped and stranded in that country. The border crisis, what, 400,000 gotaways since he took office. That's the number that we heard last week concern and projections that October might be the worst month yet of the border crisis. He's barely taken any questions on it at all. And he has conducted exactly one sit-down interview where there's an opportunity for like a real back and forth, follow up questions, probing like, well, let's, you know, let's come back and revisit that where it's not just this quick sort of, you know, blow by situation, a different setting. It's a different type of interview, which, you know, gets a little bit deeper sometimes than superficial questions. He has done that one time in the last 82 days. So getting on three months while all these crises are raging. Obviously, this is a strategy from the White House. Uh, You would think that given his sinking approval ratings, especially with independents, they might want him out there defending himself. But it's hard to escape the conclusion that they have reached the conclusion that him doing so would not help. Right?
3: Well, I mean, and that one interview was the one with George Stephanopoulos where he lied about uh, the fact that no one had advised him to keep 2,500 troops. In Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. in fact, all of his military commanders testified they didn't. They did. They wouldn't say what they told the president, but they said that their recommendations were always to keep at least twenty five hundred troops. General Milley even said up to thirty five hundred troops in Afghanistan. So, the one time he hasn't done it, it's been an absolute disaster for him. That's uh, gone around his neck. I mean, look. Here's the reality: Quinnipiac poll last week. Not only. Is Biden's approval rating at 38% in that poll, which would have been bad even for Donald Trump, right? By 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 the worst uh, period of the Trump years, he was underwater on every single issue: taxes, spending, uh, the border, his role as commander in chief, his foreign policy, and even. COVID, which was up until now has been his one, his best issue, even that he's two points underwater uh, with the American people. And worst of all, 55 percent of the American people say he's incompetent. I mean, that is, you know, so if you're not willing to put your guy out there to take questions, it's because you're afraid of confirming that (laughs) suspicion Mm -hmm. for the for the uh, for the other 44 uh, in the in the country. So, yeah, of course, he's not taking questions because he doesn't have any answers.
2: The Quinnipiac poll is getting a lot of play and a lot of attention because the numbers are so gruesome for him. But if it were just an outlier survey, I'd be right there saying, well, you know, hold on. It's one poll. This is the trend, though. It has been across a whole bunch of different polls that has shown this type of erosion. Uh, I saw your colleague at The Washington Post, Henry Olson. he's written about independents. He said the numbers have gotten even worse among independent voters And on his agenda, the president's agenda, Build Back Better is what they call it, we keep hearing these assurances from the commentariat that this is a popular agenda. And yes, if you ask people, do you support a Build Back Better agenda to spend money on these things? For the most part, the polling shows that a majority of Americans say yes. Other polls show when you start to dig in on any details, especially some of the downsides or pay-fors, borrowed spending, tax increases, support falls pretty dramatically. And there's a new survey out yesterday from CBS News, which asked people, do you believe that the Build Back Better multi-trillion dollar Democrat spending bill will help your family? Will it make it better for your family, things in general? Will it make no difference or will it make things worse? And the number who said that this policy, this proposal, all of this spending and the tax and spend binge, the number was 36% that said this would help their family. And the rest said it would make no difference or make matters worse. You know, Mark, I'm wondering if the sort of binary top line polls that the talking heads keep pointing out saying about how popular this is, I think that might be maybe slightly overstated or inflated if only a little more than one third of Americans actually think any of this will help them?
3: So here's here's the poll that matters. The 2020 election in which the American people elected a 50-50 Senate and gave Democrats a razor-thin majority in the House that's now just three votes, right? That is not a mandate for socialism. That is a mandate for compromise. That is a mandate for reaching across the aisle and trying to work together with the other side to get things done, which is what Joe Biden campaigned on. That was his promise. I can unite the country. I can bring I, I, can, I can end the rancor. I can bring Republicans and Democrats together. Well, has he done it? No, he's not. And he's not even tried on the one issue where he was shamed into into uh, do, doing a bipartisan bill. His own – the infrastructure bill, his progressives have taken that bill hostage with his blessing. He was the first president in American history to march up to Capitol Hill to meet with his caucus and demand Mm -hmm. that they take hostage his own – one of his own priorities. Never happened in American history before, taking it hostage unless we also pass a $3.5 trillion socialist spending boondoggle that would would insert the federal government into your life – from cradle to grave. People don't want that. They want they want us to compromise. They want people to work together. And and the Biden administration and the Democrats can't seem to get that through their heads.
2: I would note that the 2020 election that you just referenced, 50-50 Senate, and in the House, Republicans gained double-digit seats. Right? They gained if I'm recalling correctly, 12. They gained a dozen seats when the expectation was they were going to lose ground further. And I think that buttresses the point that you're making. Mark, let's get back now to the issue of Afghanistan, about which the president has not answered a single question in 31 days. There are some developments, one of which is good. You may recall that story, in the Washington Post, or actually it was in the Wall Street Journal, my mistake. Wall Street Journal had that story about an Afghan interpreter who had personally helped rescue Joe Biden when he and a few other senators were flying in a helicopter years ago, uh, roughly around 2008, and there was bad weather and they had to land the helicopter in the mountains. This guy went and deployed with some of our troops and helped save and rescue Joe Biden and a few of his colleagues. He was one of the many thousands of our allies left behind. With that promise that was made to him broken and he was desperate. He gave an interview to the journal. They called him Mohammed. That was the uh, sort of the, the pseudonym that they assigned to him for the purposes of this story. That was early last month. The good news is he has now been rescued. He was driven out of the country with his family. It was apparently a very harrowing operation. It was conducted by our veterans. It was a private operation. They say they got some cooperation from the Pakistani government, from the U.S. State Department. I'm very glad that this guy got out. There are thousands of others like him who have been betrayed. And the ongoing reality, Mark, is that this is being undertaken. These efforts are being spearheaded not by the government of the United States that made the promises but by American warriors, veterans, and other people who are desperate – to keep some promises and salvage our national honor. This is not the Biden administration taking the lead on this. They're a bit player at this point, and in many cases, a bystander by choice.
3: Yeah. How how is it? That we've that we I mean I first of all it's a both a good news story and a bad news story. It's a good news story in the sense that this is what's great about America. This is, goes back to de Tocqueville and he talked about the, the private the private communities and private action of the American people that we the, the, that we do. The, the fact that these veterans who who have gone who are willing to go and risk their lives and and do these again. things to get to get people out again. I mean you know the reality is. We've pulled out of Afghanistan. There are no U.S. combat troops in Afghanistan. There are Americans in Afghanistan. <laughs> they're, just not, they're just not U.S. soldiers. They're on people on the ground getting these people out. So it's, it's a beautiful story about America. It is a disastrous story about the Biden administration. How dare he leave it to veterans who've already served, done their duty, to have to go and get these people out? You know that's that's not to clean job. up his mess and keep, his promise. Right. keep his promise
2: right he's created the mess he's broken his promise and they're the ones actually working to fulfill it that is the truth
3: it's 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 the most shameful thing I've ever seen in my in my decades in Washington I just yeah I, you know and why hasn't Joe Biden taken any questions about this in in so many days because he wants to move on he doesn't want to talk he's done with Afghanistan we're out it's over he's he's deputized people to clean up whatever he can they can clean up and do whatever they can do but he's done with it he's moving on to uh to instilling socialism here in america
2: and he turned the page that was his term at the u.n speech and he's getting a bit of an assist from the news media as well they were tough on him for a while he's moved on and i guess they're also an easily distracted bunch this is why we keep talking about afghanistan the border and a bunch of other subjects that seems like people just kind of lose sight of intentionally or otherwise. Mark, let me ask you about this. The U.S. just concluded some talks with the Taliban on a host of different issues, and the State Department said that those conversations in Doha were, quote, candid and professional. So I'm sure you're very relieved to hear that, a professional conversation with the Taliban in which the Taliban – Announced, and this came out over the weekend, they will not be working with us to contain ISIS. And other Islamist extremist organizations, which was one of the things that the Biden people were risibly telling us, oh, well, you know, our partners in the Taliban, you know, we have capability. We're going to be working with them. And the Taliban said, nope, we're not going to do that, which shouldn't be a surprise because they are Islamist extremists themselves. But this is part of the fantasy that was being peddled, at least for a couple of days. And the Taliban made that official. We're not going to cooperate against ISIS. They said, however, we are very happy to get more humanitarian aid, i.e. money. From the U.S. government question, is it completely ridiculous or baseless or conspiratorial for me to wonder, at least, if what is happening here is the United States government is paying the Taliban to not kill the Americans who have been left behind?
3: That would not be surprising at all. I don't know I don't know that there's evidence of that yet, but I would not be surprising. And uh the, the Taliban this is all a money play. Look, the Taliban are in 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 trouble because they have no their their access to their to their foreign reserves and cash, uh their 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 revenues and all the rest are drying up. I means they've got no money to pay people. Uh, they've got, you know, they're going to have to do it through, for, through, through narcotics trafficking and other illicit means and through getting money from the Chinese, possibly, and the Russians. Um, but they're desperate for money. And so they're going to pretend to be nice for a little while so they can get that money. Um, and then they're going to be who they are. They say the idea that they were ever going to help us against Al-Qaeda. I mean, you just got to understand that in, in 2001, President Bush made them an ultimatum. But he said, you can keep your government as long as you hand over bin Laden and al-Qaeda. And they were willing to lose power and lose it for 20 years in order die. to protect al-Qaeda. And, yeah, no, and it, was
2: always, it was always a fantasy. They're not going to help us root out extremism because they're, they're in on it. They're, they are the extremists. Quickly, Mark, I want to read to you from Clarissa Ward at CNN. She's been, to her credit, one of the journalists who's been all over this story and still is. She tweeted earlier today, Not a day goes by when I'm not approached or contacted by multiple Afghans who are desperately waiting for news on their SIV applications. Most of them were filed long before the Taliban took over. Almost all of them worked for the Americans for many years. So she then tags the State Department and the State Department spokesman in her tweets. What should I tell these people? She says people are genuinely fearful of being targeted. They don't expect to get out tomorrow. They're just looking for more information. Should they stick with the process? Do they need to look at other options? How can they set up interviews? Who do they report threats to? These are the questions that she is posing from desperate people who were promised things by our government and – I wonder if there are any good answers that can be relayed to these people from the Biden team, or if they're just going to avert their eyes from these tweets and these types of questions.
3: I think they're averting their eyes. They, they, I mean, how you know, they, 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 it's just it's just the most shameful thing I've ever seen. And, you know, the idea that we not, it's, even if you don't care about the fate of these Afghans, at some point. We are going to go to war again with an enemy who attacks us at that, you know, whether it's a terrorist attack or whether it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's some, some other conflict. We, we, there's going to be another conflict one day that we're involved in, uh, not through a choice of our own, but because enemies out there are dangerous and they want to threaten us. And people are not going to take risks to help us because they're going to remember what we that we abandoned the Afghans who helped us. These people risked their lives, they saved the lives of American troops, they put themselves in the crosshairs of the Taliban and then we just cut and run and left them behind. And that is going to put that is going to endanger the lives of American forces in future conflicts because people will not trust us and people will not take risks for us because they saw the way we handled ourselves in Afghanistan, the way we handled our exit. And they don't want to be a part of that for their family.
2: Mark Thiessen was chief speechwriter to President George W. Bush. He's a columnist at The Washington Post, Fox News contributor, AEI fellow. His podcast is What the Hell is Going On? Unfortunately, the answer to that broad question, there are answers in many cases. The answers are just bad and depressing, demoralizing and disgraceful and front and center on that. In that category, I would say is Afghanistan, which is why I wanted to make sure that we discussed it at some length with Mark. Sir, we appreciate it. We look forward to having you back soon. Thanks for having me on. Mark Tason on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back.
4: You're listening to Guy Benson.
2: Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz
3: Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on FoxNewsPodcast.com or
2: wherever you download podcasts. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Today is the Boston Marathon, which is a huge event in that city. And we talked quite a bit about the activists harassing and stalking Senator Kirsten Cinema of Arizona. Remember, they, of course, chased her into the bathroom. They were filming her in the bathroom as they were demanding that she do what they want her to do on the Biden agenda. Well, they weren't satisfied or done just yet. She is someone who's big into fitness and she was running the Boston marathon. So these activists announced not the exact same people. It's just like this class of hard left folks. This is what they do. They announced that they were going to stalk her and bird dog her during the marathon. I guess like keep track of where she was and, and lobby her as she ran. I cannot imagine that this has any chance of doing anything other than alienating and pissing her off. Like, I don't know what in their minds makes them believe, oh, yes, this is going to work and be helpful to our cause. Maybe they don't care. It's just like the catharsis. It's the direct activism. It sort of, you know, gives them a thrill. So they're going to do it anyway. Aside from the grossness of it, especially the bathroom stuff, what weirdos, what a bunch of absolute weirdos leave this person alone in her private life. Juan Williams joins us. We'll ask him about that and more coming up. Fox Nation presents
4: Podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak.
1: I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts.
4: Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy Benson Show.
2: It's a new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our middle hour of three. Thanks for tuning in every weekday. And happy Monday to you if such a thing exists. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonshow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. Before we get to our next guest, let's bring you a Fox News alert and just an update from New York where the Dow closes down 250 points to 34,496 as a down day overall on Wall Street. With us now is Juan Williams, Fox News analyst, columnist at the Hill, author of multiple books, including What the Hell Do You Have to Lose? Juan will be on the panel tonight on Special Report with Brett Bayer. Juan, welcome back to the show. Good to have you.
5: My pleasure, Guy. Hey, Guy, before we get going, should uh, should that batter have been allowed to score in the uh, Tampa-Boston game last night once the, oh, the Boston r- out knocked the ball over the fence?
2: Yeah, so I watched the play about a thousand times. I didn't watch the game. I watched the late game with the White Sox uh, showing some some life and beating the Houston Astros in Game 3. I didn't see the Red Sox walk-off win, but I did see that play because it was being broken down all over sports media. My understanding is that the umpires got the call right based on the rule as it's written, but the rule as written to me seems absolutely crazy because the runner would have easily scored effortlessly if the ball had even been cleanly fielded by the right fielder, let alone knocked by the right fielder inadvertently over the wall. And to see Tampa, I mean, you know, if I were a Rays fan, I would be really mad, even though it's the letter of the law apparently was upheld. That seems like a nutty rule to me because that's a run that should have scored.
5: Yeah, and it changes the momentum of the game and it changes totally. directions in terms of how Boston and Tampa went about the bottom of the inning so to me you know it's one of these things it's like a schoolyard thing for me because I'm not a fan of either team but it's just wrong it's just not fair I know you're going to tell me hey Juan life's not fair but that rule is crazy I don't know how they even came up with such a rule imagine if you did it and I don't think the Boston player did it intentionally but if he did it intentionally you're telling me the same rule would apply that's a bad rule
2: and I guess, and we don't have to get too far into the weeds, maybe we already have, but the rule, I guess, depends on where the runner was at the time of the pitch, as opposed to where the runner was at the time that the ball went over the wall, which seems to me like the more important question about whether a run should count. I know there's ground rule doubles you know, rules that have existed for a very long time, but in that case, to have the defensive play, the defending player, the right fielder in this case, knocked the ball out of play and to have an easy run that would have scored. And the other guy, the batter likely would have had a triple, at least a double, to send them both back based on this rule. Then they don't take the lead, even though they were going to. And then Boston walks off with a home run in the bottom of the inning. That's got to be... Maddening if you're a Rays fan, but they've got a shot to come back and bounce back, they'll have to do so tonight, or else they could get bounced out by the Red Sox. Juan, are you rooting for anyone in these playoffs? I know your Nats did not have a good season. My Yankees gone in the wild card game. Do you have a rooting interest?
5: Not really. Uh you know, I'm more of a national league guy because I follow the Nationals so closely. Uh, so, I'm very interested in the LA-San Francisco series. I think <clears throat> right there you're deciding who's going to be the world champion. Uh, I do think that's the you know critical series. So, to my mind, it's a great matchup. I tend to, because now Los Angeles has two former national players, Max Scherzer right. and Trey Turner, I have a right. rooting interest for them, on the other hand. You know, I love underdogs. It's just me, as you get to know me, guy. And I think San Francisco was ru- was rated as one of the lowest teams going into this season, and they come out as the top team in terms of wins in the National League. How can you not root for guys who are putting it out like that every day?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I have some teams that I'm rooting against, right? There are some teams that I definitely do not want to succeed, Houston and Boston in particular, Uh, And if they both make it to the ALCS, then it'll just be sort of like, you know, uh, I I don't even know who I'd root for, honestly, at that point. That's a tough choice. But I'm rooting for the Chicago White Sox. A good buddy of mine from college works for them. A few of my other friends are big White Sox fans. Uh, I like to see Milwaukee doing well. I think that's exciting for them. Um, the Braves were very nice to me when I was down there earlier this season throughout the first pitch at their beautiful ballpark. So I think they got screwed over with the all-star game. So I'm kind of rooting for them a little bit, even though I never rooted for the Braves in the past. So it's also kind of fun to to just watch the excitement and drama of playoff baseball. It's just disappointing when your team isn't involved. And I don't want to talk more about the Yankees because I'll start getting frustrated. They need to make some changes. All right, Juan, let's move on from, from baseball to a few other topics, including before we get to politics, we just celebrated last week the 25th anniversary of Fox News. And we have had a bunch of people from Fox on the show, and they've given some of their reflections. You are one of the few who has been here for the whole time, all 25 years, which is pretty cool and extraordinary. As you look back across your career here at Fox News, a quarter century, and you really you know, take a step back from the day in and day out – of being on air and just look at what this place has meant to you and your career as someone who is often, I would say, outnumbered ideologically on opinion shows or, you know, on panels and that sort of thing. uh, What are your thoughts as a, you know, center-left liberal Democrat being a member of the Fox team since day one?
5: You know, it feels amazing to me. It's like if you were writing my life story, you would say, I can't believe that he ended up at, you know, Fox News, because not only is Fox the leading news channel in terms, I think it's the leading news channel in general, I mean, I'll let you decide, but certainly the leading cable news channel in America, Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and, uh, um, and I think that it often sets the tone for news coverage in general. Um, so, you know, when I think, uh, you know, going back, you know, to 1996, when things were getting going, Roger Ailes, who was then the president and the head, he was starting it with Mr. Murdoch, uh, you know, he approached me and I had been working for CNN, and I remember my wife said to me, why would you leave CNN? They're the brand name in cable news. And I said, you know, I really think the world of Roger Ailes, and, you know, he had been a source for me when I was covering the Reagan White House and then Bush. And, uh, you know, I think he, he's a, a real smart guy. I think let's, let's give this a shot. And uh, I didn't know how conservative it would become. But to my mind, you know what? I think that it is astounding I mean, literally, guy, if you look back at the media landscape of the mid 1990s, to think of Fox News as being at the top of the hill, it's, it's almost, you would have to say you're a visionary, you're a prophet. So I can't claim to be any of that. I just say I was lucky to get on early. As, as you point out, I'm a unicorn. Well, you took the office. risk. Yeah, I right, took you had to take picture. that risk. Right. But I believed in the people and I, I believed in the enterprise. And by the way, at one point in my journey, you know, obviously I say things that are unpopular on the left and the right. And you know, Fox mm-hmm. has never ever said to me, "Hey, you know, because you're you're not predictable and because you say things that some people find crazy, they've never thrown me out the door." So I got to say thank you.
2: Yeah, I think that's also important, and I know people sometimes. Oh, why do you have Juan on? Why do you have some of these liberals on? Well, this is so boring. If you're just sitting around constantly agreeing with everyone all the time, what's the point? What's the point of that? Juan, I have to say this about Fox before we get to politics. I saw some of the flashback clips around the anniversary. And some of those early days, like Fox News Sunday editions, where you were on the panel, it looked like you were filming in someone's living room or something. I don't know where you were, but seeing that compared to these beautiful new studios that we have in D.C. and New York, I mean, night and day. Early days versus you know an established sort of uh, uh, gorilla, huge you know five hundred pound gorilla in the news industry that Fox has become. It's got to be kind of cool for you to have been there for every stage of it.
5: It is cool. Let me just tell you, you know, when you just said that, it sparked a memory, Guy, because early on, we did Fox News Sunday literally from a garden here in Washington, D.C. It's a historic garden, but we were just out in the garden because we didn't have a good studio. So we're trying to set up lights, Marty, uh, you know, all these people who now some are gone from the, the company, but we, they were such really, you know, guerrilla fighters in terms of getting Fox established and everybody naysaying us and saying, oh, you know, you guys, how are you even going to get distribution? A number of the mm-hmm. big cable companies wouldn't put us on. And as you said, it looked like we were basically not only in somebody's living room, maybe in somebody's basement, <laughs> putting on right. a TV show. Or their and- backyard.
2: <laughs> and yeah those early days and, and brit hume talked about this uh people laughed at fox news laughed at the idea that we would be competitive and then within just a few short years they were not laughing anymore um and that has been true for now what tw- two decades out of this 25 year existence of the news channel which is pretty cool and there aren't a ton of people on the air who've been here for the whole stretch they've been doing these little vignettes and montages where they'll Bring someone in, and they'll sit down, and they'll do a quick interview on the news channel, and they'll show the little staffer uh, ID card that they have. Trace Gallagher's is on right now on Fox Business; he's been here the whole time. But a lot of them's like you know eight years, thirteen years, nineteen years, twenty-one years, and then there's the sort of the special fraternity of twenty-five years. Uh, Men and women who've been here the whole time, and you're among them, Juan, and so I just wanted to get some of your thoughts, and I do appreciate them a lot and appreciate you being here at the network. In the last few minutes that we have together, you've got a new column at The Hill about the power of women – in the upcoming political battles, not just the election, but even battles on Capitol Hill. You talk about Kirsten Cinema, the Democrat from Arizona. We were mentioning her in the last hour. She had activists bird-dogging her as she ran the Boston Marathon today. This on the heels, of course, of that incident being filmed in a bathroom. I wonder, based on your thesis, that she in particular is a woman with a lot of Power Right now, given her swing vote in the U.S. Senate, which is 50-50, do you think it was unwise politically for President Biden not to come to her defense in a more vocal and vociferous way after some activists, I think, really crossed a line with that bathroom incident, given the fact that, A, I think it would have been the right thing to do, but B, that's a vote that he absolutely has to get in order for this agenda, whatever it ends up looking like, to actually pass and end up on his desk.
5: Well, I think that Democrats, uh, I think Biden and others have said that was inappropriate. It's wrong. And I think that the only one I think that was kind of on the edge about it was, I think, Bernie Sanders. who said, you know,
2: yeah, Bernie wouldn't a sign a letter. Biden. Yeah, but yeah, Biden yeah, Biden I mean, said it was not appropriate, but he said, look, it happens to everyone and right. it's part I mean, of the process. Yeah.
5: About you, but it's happened to me. I, I remember once being with Oprah Winfrey, and people wouldn't even let her go to the bathroom. I, it happens, but I just think, you know, it's it's wrong, and I think that it's a, one of the penalties of public life. But I don't like it. I thought it was obnoxious and rude.
2: Where do you think this thing's going, Juan? If you had to make a prediction, it seems to me like, and I've been saying this really now for weeks, I cannot envision them losing this whole kit and caboodle. I think. They're going to pass the bipartisan infrastructure thing. They're going to get something else passed. It's not going to be what the left wants necessarily, but they're going to get something done. Pelosi already had to pump this thing twice, and she rarely has to do something like that. And I can't imagine that she's going to allow herself, perhaps in her final stretch as speaker, to let both of these balls drop on the Biden agenda. I think they're going to get something done. I just don't know who's going to be – relatively pleased with it within the democratic party and who's going to be mad who's going to have their arms twisted it's still i'd say an open question i i still just imagine they they're not going to squander the opportunity altogether but i don't know what do you think
5: i, I don't see how they can that would be totally self-destructive right they have the power right now now it's a very limited power because they are i think they are four plus votes in the house and they are in a tie in the senate Right. But it would be totally self-destructive to say, oh, I can't get everything I want, so I'll take nothing. That's, you know, talk about sending the kid to his room, you know, without dinner. you got to eat something, something. Uh, and that's what the Democrats have to do. So I don't think that you sound as if you're hesitant in saying the Democrats will get it done. I don't think there's any question.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, my my overall inclination is that you're right. I just think it's been already more painful and acrimonious than i expected and pelosi saying we got to do something and not nothing that argument has not yet prevailed to the point that they had to blow off some scheduled votes which is something that they were not excited to do but they're in a time crunch they've got these deadlines now at the end of this month and more deadlines coming up in december so it could be a very eventful and busy fall season spooky season especially for conservatives uh, here in washington dc Juan Williams, Fox News analyst. Always a pleasure, Juan. Thanks for stopping by. You're welcome. And the Guy Benson Show continues after this short break.
4: You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. I'm Guy
2: Benson. We are back. Just a quick programming note for this evening. I'll be joining Fox News primetime in the 7 p.m. hour with host this week, Jesse Waters. So that'll be an adventure. See you in the 7 o'clock hour Eastern Fox News channel. Well, this was an interview that was rather interesting. Have you seen this? It's gone viral. Ben and Jerry from the ice cream company. They sat down for an interview about politics and business and other things and they're, you know, crunchy, crunchy leftists and they were interviewed by Axios and we mentioned this story a while back that the parent company or the company that now owns and sells Ben and Jerry's was no longer going to sell the product in the West Bank in solidarity with the free Palestine movement and as a criticism apparently of Israeli policies. So it was like a quasi-boycott of Israel, even though it was not really hurting Israel. It was hurting Palestinians. But the, the purpose of it, the signal being sent, was a political one directed at Israel. Not necessarily a surprise. These are leftists. A lot of their hardcore left-wing fans had been agitating for this on social media and dragging Ben and Jerry's, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you stepping up your game against Israel? so they decided to go ahead and offer this gesture so they were asked about it versus other gestures that they have chosen not to make and this is so brutal in cut 24 the answer here from uh one of these guys who runs the company listen
1: you guys are big proponents of voting rights why do you still sell ice cream in georgia texas abortion bans why are you still selling there
3: I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's a it's an interesting question. I don't know what. What that would accomplish. We're working on those issues of voting rights and. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'd, I, You know, I mean, I think
4: you ask a really good question and I think I'd have to sit down and think about it for a bit.
2: Yeah. Well, you thought about it for quite a bit before he said anything. We didn't edit that at all. Long pause. By the way, if they're in favor of voting rights and they shouldn't be that mad about Georgia or Texas, which actually expanded early voting in a number of key ways, that's neither here nor there. But it's like he had never thought about this. It had never occurred to him. By the way, that same parent company, Unilever, they do business with China in Xinjiang where the concentration camps are being run. I wonder if Ben and Jerry would have any hot takes on that. This is why I like delicious ice cream and don't take my cues on politics from aging hippies like this. Just my take on The Guy
4: Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him. You love him. You want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson.
2: Back here on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day if you can't catch every moment live as it airs. Well, we have quite a doozy of a segment on this Monday. It's time for Woke Tales.
5: Woke Tales.
2: And we have before us a veritable buffet supper of Woke Tales stories. And I scarcely know where to begin. We covered a few of these on TV yesterday. I was hosting over the weekend the big show, Saturday and Sunday. And we talked about a combination of these stories. So maybe we'll start there. The state of California has now mandated gender-neutral toy aisles for large retailers. This is now law, signed by Governor Newsom. And I guess the idea here, because they interviewed for a few of these stories, the lawmaker who authored the bill, the idea is, well, we can't have these uh, gendered toys being marketed to one group of children over another because it perpetuates, what, harmful and outmoded stereotypes, and therefore... If you're Toys R Us or Walmart or a large retailer in the state of California and you are selling toys to children, you cannot specifically target boys or girls. Because obviously this is a pressing priority in the state of California, where half the place seems to be on fire on any given weekend, literally, where homelessness has exploded. Where crime has shot through the roof, especially in some major cities where they've stopped really enforcing the law in a lot of important ways. Where no one could afford housing. Where people are being driven out of the state because of high taxes, because of regulatory burdens. It's driving away individuals, families, businesses. The state of California lost population in the new census. Because a lot of people simply can't afford to live in that state anymore. And you've got the leadership of that state focused like a laser beam on the toy aisle at CVS. CVS that was probably just ransacked and looted, by the way. Right. So the the Walgreens or the CVS corporation and the local managers at these stores They can't stop systemic, widespread shoplifting, which is not really being prosecuted in San Francisco and Los Angeles, sort of like low level crimes that they don't want to intervene on. You've seen those videos. But where the police might get involved is if you've got too many toys marketed to boys. Welcome to California. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic Ocean, we have this story. British Airways has now publicly announced something about their announcements. When you get on the plane, settle into your seat, right? The flight attendant or the pilot gets on there and gives you some info about what to expect. The flight's going to be this long. There's some turbulence over Nebraska or whatever. Sit back, relax, and enjoy your flight. Well, what they are not going to do on British Airways anymore is address... These announcements to ladies and gentlemen. Because, you see, it is just not sufficiently inclusive. Ladies and gentlemen, I guess, is too exclusive and not diverse enough, so they're not going to say that anymore. Now, look. They can do what they want. I think the likelihood of anyone not getting aboard their flight... Because they're offended by ladies and gentlemen or offended by British Airways suggesting that they should be offended by ladies and gentlemen. I think that population is minuscule. But sometimes with these types of stories, you do just have to ask out loud the question, what the hell are we doing here? And this was a point that I made briefly on TV yesterday, and I've made it at greater length here on the radio as well. I think that we can and should... Be an inclusive, welcoming, kind, respectful society. I think when possible, we can accommodate people when it comes to their self-identity, how they want to be referred to. I think going out of our way not to do that can be rude and pointless and mean-spirited. So I think that we can, again, show kindness and empathy while affirming the value of every person, while also not completely uprooting everything that we do and changing the English language, just altering the plain meaning of actual words and without engaging in these types of virtue signaling, preening displays that seem to be directed at appeasing a tiny microscopic fraction of activists that do not represent anything close to mainstream culture. Think of it this way. 99% of all of us are cisgendered, right? The number could be a little higher, a little lower, but let's just ballpark it at 99, probably 99 plus percent which means that almost every single person on earth identifies as their birth sex. Now, there is some fraction, a small one, of people who are transgender or non-binary or gender fluid or identify as some other category. Do we need to change everything that we say and do and how we refer to people – do we need to erase women? For example, we've talked about this with breastfeeding mothers, women like that stuff is getting thrown out in the activist world and in institutions that are governed by activists or live in fear of activists. You are seeing erasure of just basic, common sense, plain meaning of words and institutions, phrases, identifications, etc where it's like now problematic to even talk about women as being mothers. This is how we get these cringeworthy formulations like menstruating people, birthing people, chest feeding. We've discussed this all previously on Woke Tales. Saying ladies and gentlemen on a public address system To get people's attention is not offensive. Almost every single person in the world would consider themselves in one of those categories. And would not be offended by being referred to as either a lady or a gentleman, including a lot of transgender people who identify as a lady or a gentleman. So what you have left over is an even slimmer number of people who might potentially, hypothetically be offended by being called a lady or a gentleman. And I dare say that a good number of them would not be offended. They hear the phrase, ladies and gentlemen, they understand that applies to almost everyone, and they're not going to be upset or triggered or furious or starting boycotts or whatever based on that. So as we do this math... There is a slimmer and slimmer sliver of people left who might hypothetically be offended or decide collectively in a little activist group, a little clique, that they're going to at least feign offense to make some sort of a big deal out of this. Was this a crisis? Was British Airways under pressure from someone to stop with ladies and gentlemen? To what extent are we going to allow a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of our society to change the way that we all talk and to change our culture. And if they have a really strong case for why, I'm open to an argument and to have that discussion. Language evolves, standards evolve, things change. Everything has to remain exactly static, exactly the way it is forever and ever. That's not how language works. It's not how societies work. It's not how human nature works. But if you're going to ask people to radically alter in the blink of an eye how we talk about a lot of things based on the ever-changing, capricious whims of a teeny, tiny handful of people, you need a pretty compelling reason. And I don't see a compelling reason forthcoming. I see companies and individuals and universities, et cetera, who are scared of appearing in any way, shape or form less than fully woke. And so we get these types of declarations. And oh, by the way, on the toy aisle story in California – I saw that Legos is now apologizing or something and saying, oh, there's some new study of kids and their development and gender roles and stereotypes. And they're going to work to erase gender stereotypes in their Legos. So you can rest easy. The building block company is going to do its best to stop with the uh, harmful stereotypes of gender or something. The activists say jump and these companies say, oh, yep. how, How high? It's building blocks. Never again will a Lego be blue or pink. Aren't they yellow for the most part? Look, I'm not going to get dragged back into the uh, toy wars. We've already covered that here on Woke Tales. Here's the last one. Last story for the day on Woke Tales. Saw this in the New York Times. DC Comics has announced that Superman, the new Superman, is gay. Or at least LGBT, it's unclear if he's gay or just bisexual or bi-curious, we don't quite know. But he will have a male love interest moving forward. And I saw that, I was like, okay, it's another one. How many fictional characters recently have been revealed to be LGBT in some way? I know SpongeBob was. There have been other superheroes as well where they – it seems like every few months someone wants to make a splash and get a headline. Disney, we've talked about this. Like once a year, there's a headline about the first ever openly gay Disney character you know, shattering the glass ceiling and breaking ground even though it's happened four or five times now. It's like they want credit and like some tokens in the woke bank every time they do it like, oh, it's this brand new thing. And I get, look, representation is good, and I'm not against that sort of thing. But it just after a while, I'm like, why? Now, this is now Clark Kent and Lois Lane's kid, who's the new generation of Superman. That's my understanding. If you think about it, Superman is generally, like, really muscular and rep, spends a lot of time on his body. And he feels most powerful and comfortable in skin-tight, skimpy clothing. One may have come to this conclusion on one's own already without DC Comics beating you over the head. Oh, Superman's gay. What annoys me more about this story where I just roll my eyes is the new character, according to DC Comics, is going to be politically active. So you can stop holding your breath for that. Thank God Superman is going to be politically active. He's an environmentalist. Plot lines, apparently, in this comic are going to include school shootings and deportation and protesting against deportation, climate change. Doesn't that sound fun? Doesn't that sound like a fun, escapist, whimsical adventure? And I understand superheroes have always grappled with larger questions of morality. That's part of the shtick. But with wokeism, there's nothing that can be left to interpretation. There's nothing that can be subtle. They cram it down your throat as explicitly as possible so no one can possibly lose the meaning of what is good and what is bad. And woke is good and unwoke is bad. I see the current creator or writer of the Superman comic was quoted as saying, the idea of replacing Clark Kent with another straight white savior felt like a missed opportunity. Yeah, so they're going to replace him instead with... A gay, white savior, I guess. He'll be at a Green New Deal rally with his boyfriend making out. Then he'll disappear. He'll reemerge, flying through the air. Someone in Metropolis has been misgendered. And that will not stand. Not in this Superman's universe. And people will shout as they see him go by. They're a bird. They're a plane. Because you don't want to. Assume that it's a heat, right? Being LGBT isn't really even that cutting edge anymore. I don't think we should rest until every fictional character is at least non-binary. So we can call Superman they and them just to be safe. But do not say that they are flying faster than a speeding bullet because, you know, guns. Superman's against those. And Superman is a woke activist who is LGBT in some way. I think there's a joke to be made about putting super in Superman. I think that's the type of joke that I'm allowed to make as a gay man, but you never know what the rules are at any given moment. So perhaps I won't connect those dots and make that joke explicitly. Although you probably just laughed, didn't you? In which case, shame on you. Problematic laughter is also banned, especially during woke tales on the Guy Benson show. You're listening to
4: Guy Benson. That- Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News.
2: Back here on The Guy Benson Show. When we come back in the next hour, Dr. Nicole Sapphire is going to be here talking about COVID, some breakthroughs, and some head-scratching decisions by the government. And a new head-scratching statement by Dr. Fauci. That's all coming up. I do want to mention this because it plays into at least part of the discussion that we're going to have. I saw this tweet. Someone sent it to me where a teachers union in New Jersey, Essex County, heavily Democratic county, members of their teachers union went to an equality ball for the LGBTQ community. These were, I guess, uh, members of the teachers union who were in attendance. And they took a bunch of photos at this gala and they're posing and they're smiling. And here are some people on stage and they're sitting around taking photos. And here's another selfie and they are indoors and they are not wearing masks. Now, I'll remind you that all the students that these teachers teach are required in New Jersey to be wearing masks seven hours a day, even though data Out of studies, for example, one out of the UK recently, a huge study out of the UK, showed that children who are unvaccinated are less of a risk for death from COVID than even vaccinated adults who are already at a very low risk. So the school masking stuff, you know my position on it. I think the data has been pretty clear, but here are the teachers union representatives at a big indoor party without masks, taking photos, publishing them on the Internet. When they students, based on reasons that are completely baffling and not rooted in science, they have to be in school wearing masks all day long. Even though there's a new story I saw from The Atlantic showing that kids are having trouble recognizing each other with masks on and schools are trying to figure out what to do about it. Well, what they can do about it is take the masks off the kids' faces because there's no science supporting it. By the way, these teachers got called out and down went the tweet. Down the memory hole. Disappeared from the internet. But we saw it. They did it. Because the rules only apply in certain cases. Absolutely maddening. We'll get into that and more with Dr. Sapphire. Straight ahead, the final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up.
4: Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
2: It's our final hour here on the Guy Benson Show. A new week on the program. Thank you for listening every day from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time or on the podcast, which is always free and on demand, GuyBensonShow.com. And the happy hour is brought to you by the Finnish long drink. I had a couple, as promised, over the weekend. So good. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they are sold near you. They are expanding. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only. And please drink responsibly. With us now is Dr. Nicole Sapphire, board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor. She's a best-selling author. Her most recent book is Panic Attack, Playing Politics with Science in the Fight Against COVID-19. Dr. Sapphire, welcome back.
1: Thank you for having me, Guy.
2: I want to get your take first on what seems to be potentially a breakthrough, game-changing drug from Merck. We've mentioned it on the air here previously. It's this pharmaceutical company has come up with what appears to be a successful therapeutic that treats people in the early stages who are infected with COVID-19. This is different than antibody treatments which are much more expensive, that's my understanding. This would be in pill form and uh, apparently reportedly it just performed off the charts in the clinical trial and they're trying to fast track this thing with the FDA. For approval. What can you tell us about this drug? And if things go the way that it looks like they might or that we hope that they will, what difference could this treatment make?
1: Well, guys, for the last year and a half, we have been telling people you need to be hunkering down because we don't have a vaccine to prevent infection from SARS-CoV-2. And we don't have effective treatments to keep people out of the hospital. Well, here we are. It's October 2021. We have ample access to very successful vaccines that continue to keep people out of the hospital and saving lives. And now we have what could be a game changer when it comes to to a treatment for COVID-19. Now, in, you know, we've heard in the past, we have remdesivir, which is another antiviral medication, one that shows a mild benefit if given in the first 48 hours of symptoms. But the problem with that one was, it's, you have to be given IV, and it was only approved of people in the hospital. So how is that really going to work if the goal is to keep people out of the hospital? Well, you can really only get this expensive medication via IV if you're in the hospital. So no wonder it wasn't the game changer we were wanting. And then we had the monoclonal antibodies, which is approved for outpatient, and it does actually show to work. But again, you need an infusion site for this. This is not something that's easily taken. But now here we are with Merck's molnupiravir, which is an antiviral, works differently than remdesivir. But it is shown, well, first of all, it's a pill that you take a couple times a day for five days. And in the study that has been released, now, mind you, it hasn't been peer-reviewed yet. But in the study, it shows that it has reduced hospitalizations and deaths by about 50%. That's just about the equivalent of Tamiflu, what what we use every single year over and over again, for flu to prevent severe infections of the flu. So this is a good step forward for us. This is easy to obtain medication. People can get it from the pharmacy with a prescription from their doctor when they're having mild symptoms, and it may just save their life and keep them out of the hospital. That's what we've needed.
2: Yeah, I mean, it would be huge. And then you're looking at the whole array of options here for preventing severe illness, In multiple different ways, starting with the vaccines, then of course you have natural immunity as well in a lot of people, which is quite powerful and would seem to be durable based on some of the data. Then you have some of the earlier treatments that had flaws or maybe weren't perfect, but at least were something. Then the monoclonal antibodies, and now on top of that, an ingestible pill that you would take like Tamiflu, you look at that whole menu of options, doctor, and It really feels like at that point, if they approve this for widespread use, I don't understand why we would not at that stage drop almost all COVID-related restrictions because there are vaccines available to everyone who wants them, boosters for those who are most vulnerable. Those have been approved, and I'd imagine probably more will be approved down the line. You'll have the natural immunity component. You'll have the inpatient treatments. Now the pill form of treatments. The antibodies, I mean, when you add that all up, that is a really significant arsenal against this virus that we did not have for most of the pandemic. Now we do and and we're looking forward hopefully to this Merck drug being approved. Why wouldn't we then have a new status quo where we would revert back basically to total normalcy?
1: Well, Guy, that's a great question. And I can tell you, it's really because the United States as a whole at this point, our risk perception and ability to live with everyday risk is completely askew. People still feel that we need to get to zero COVID, that they need to be assured that they will not be infected by SARS-CoV-2 and that they will not have a severe outcome. But unfortunately, we can't do that. But as a society, when we have given the people education of how to put themselves in the most safe position when it comes to SARS-CoV-2 with vaccination. And now we have boosters, as you said, for the most vulnerable. If we can get compassionate use of volnupiravir, we don't even have to fully wait for the EUA. We can get this readily available to people and we can start moving forward. However, you're going to see there's still talk about we need to be vaccinating younger children, and Pfizer has now submitted for 5 to 11 years old. But again, you have to think of it as normal risk, and we've had this conversation over and over again. I feel like a broken record, but the risk of a young, healthy child having a severe outcome of COVID-19 is about that of an adult who's vaccinated, and yet adults who are vaccinated are going out. They're having parties. They're having weddings. They're getting together. It's time to let the children be children.
2: I want to play for you a soundbite. This was from CNBC. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA chief, we've had him on the show. He seems very excited about the prospect of this new oral pill, this treatment that we're talking about. But he's frustrated because it looks like we're behind the eight ball already in terms of production and scaling this thing up. And he seems to say that we're going about this backwards, waiting for every I to be dotted and T to be crossed rather than getting this stuff into production. And he lays that blame not on the drug company, but on the government. Listen to cut 19.
3: My lament is that manufacturing should have been sitting there hot waiting for this, given the magnitude of the crisis that we're dealing with.
2: But down the and uh, it's not a Merck problem. I mean, this is really the government. And, Doctor, I know that's not necessarily your wheelhouse to comment on the government, but I'll just make the editorial point. We have seen the White House, the president, the public health establishment going on and on about the vaccines, and so have we here. You and I specifically on the air repeatedly have endorsed the vaccines. We're both fully vaccinated. This is something that works and is safe, and I will say that over and over again because it's true – But it's gone beyond that. Right. We have mandates, new mandates that the White House had said they weren't going to even attempt, was not within the scope or the realm of their authority. Then they went there anyway. You see the White House and the president attacking governors that they disagree with for all sorts of things, not imposing certain mandates, not requiring masks in schools, relying too heavily on uh, monoclonal antibodies. That was the new attack recently on Ron DeSantis which was a change from the previous attack on Ron DeSantis, which was this was, you know, snake oil that he was embracing for some reason in an anti-vax distraction. Then they said, oh, wait, this actually does work very well. Let's accuse him of hoarding it. So we'll ration it instead. We've gotten all of this political messaging, all of this shaming, all of these mandates. And meanwhile, here is a drug that would be easily accessible, that would cut down the risk of hospitalization for people already infected with covid by half. And the government, I guess, was sort of asleep at the switch, not being proactive. And now we might have a supply problem on this drug, whereas if they had been focused on priorities like this earlier on, this could have been ramped up much more quickly, much more effectively heading into the late fall and winter. And you know, hopefully there's not another big wave, but there could be another wave. It just seems like some of the priorities here are really out of whack. And are very confusing to a lot of people who are watching this from the outside.
1: I mean, it's really interesting, as you point out. um, You know, the government put forth tens of millions of dollars for these plastic barriers without any data showing that maybe these are going to work. And then we see all these plastic barriers go up in restaurants and at schools and what forth. Now the data shows us, hey, you know what? Those may actually increase transmission. So we're going to take them all down. Not to mention all the funding that went to the schools and all of these other measures that kept children actually out of schools. Rather than putting their money where there's actually a way to save lives, they continue to put it through frivolous things just to appease people. Because wearing masks in schools, we've discussed, putting up these plastic barriers, that's to make people feel good. But there's actually not data showing that it works. How about the government start putting their money where the data is And not Mm -hmm. where the lobby
2: dollars go. Uh, That's a really, really good point. It's not just about the political attacks in this case and some of the misplaced priorities, in my view. This goes to a lot of the safety theater versus stuff that tangibly works, right? Do we want people to feel good? Do we want people's superstitions to be allayed? Or do we want actual results that keep human beings out of the hospital after they get COVID, even if it's a breakthrough case or something like that? Uh, That is a really, really good and important point. Dr. Sapphire, I want to get your reaction to something that Dr. Anthony Fauci said in one of his countless interviews. He was talking about mask wearing over the winter. And it appeared that he talked about perhaps wearing masks outdoors. Let's just listen together to cut eight, and then I want to get your analysis. I strongly uh, suspect that you're going to start seeing the deaths go down similar to the hospitalizations. How quickly
3: they go down and how thoroughly they go down is gonna depend a lot on a number of circumstances, which will be influenced by things like the colder weather, people doing things indoors, how well they go by the CDC guidelines of when you have a lot of infection in the community, even though you're vaccinated when you are in not home, but outside congregate settings in the public, Wearing masks, I think, would be very prudent.
2: Okay, I'm trying to decipher what he's actually saying here, because a lot of people heard not at home, but outside. And he talks about wearing masks. Is he talking about outdoor mask wearing or is he talking about mask wearing when you are outside of your home in indoor settings? At the very best, this messaging is imprecise. Do you have a sense of what he's talking about here?
1: I'm not going to pretend that I know what he's talking about, but I can tell you that I cannot imagine in any circumstance at this point that he would suggest mask wearing while outdoors when we have such access to vaccines. Um, However, what he was talking about, here's a piece that we have to keep in mind. So first of all, yes, the deaths actually, we're not waiting for them to come down. They already are starting to come down, just like cases and hospitalizations. Will we see an uptick during the winter months as people start congregating indoors again? It's likely. Is it going to be the same as it was last winter? Absolutely. Absolutely not. Not when we have had so much vaccine induced immunity, so much natural immunity at this point. Here's my recommendation for these people who continue to shape our healthcare policy. How about you actually spend five minutes and get a universal reporting system so that we are not inflating cases, hospitalizations and deaths so that we have an accurate portrayal of where we are in combating this virus so we can Mm -hmm. get back. a level of normalcy because we can't be going based on hospitalizations or deaths because maybe arkansas is reporting differently than illinois is we we have to know where we are, and when you see our own data, like some of those hospitals out of California did, they looked at their data and they said, wow, you know what, like 50% of the cases we said were from COVID, they're not even from COVID. How about we actually do a deep dive and we do that? Because I can tell you, if you do that, the what seems to be high hospitalizations and high deaths While they are still happening, they're probably not as high as we're making it seem, and that is continuing to promulgate fear and anxiety, and with that, health policy that is restrictive.
2: Yep, and it's the old with versus of debate, and it just – I think the most frustrating thing to me overall, Doctor, is that we are well over a year and a half into this. And it still feels like we are flying blind and in some cases have learned absolutely nothing. And that data and evidence that comes out in some cases for no apparent reason just completely gets ignored. And we continue down paths that are not supported by actual science and we ignore other paths that are supported by actual science. And it just keeps going. And that's why I think there's so much ongoing mistrust. That's my take, and I know that overall you agree, and you wrote a lot about it in your book, Panic Attack. It's Dr. Nicole Sapphire. She's our colleague here at Fox News, senior Fox News medical contributor. Doctor, always appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me on, Guy.
2: The Guy Benson Show continues right after this.
4: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's new from the Fox News Podcasts Network.
1: My name is Kennedy and welcome to my podcast, which will I humbly say, single-handedly save the
4: world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.
2: Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Well, this past weekend, my Northwestern Wildcats had a bye week, so they were off, so I didn't have to stress about the college football season for one week. I didn't have to worry about another... Performance like we saw in Lincoln, Nebraska the previous week with this total demolition at the hands of the Cornhuskers, who, by the way, really hung tough with Michigan this past weekend under the lights, also in Lincoln. But the Wolverines ultimately prevailed. That was a good game. A lot of good games. I like being just liberated to watch and enjoy without getting emotionally tied up with my own team, especially if that team happens to be struggling, uh, which they are this season so far. And there were some epic games. The Texas-Oklahoma Red River rivalry game in Dallas was just wild. The Longhorns looked like they had it. They were up big. They were up multiple scores on multiple occasions and just absolutely melted down. And the Sooners came back and won. And the frustration and misery for Texas fans continues. I will say, I still think Oklahoma's overrated. They have been playing with fire all season long. I'll be surprised if they end up going the distance here. I'm just saying. But they beat their hated rival in dramatic come-from-behind fashion. So that was a lot of the buzz early in the day on Saturday. And then, boom, Alabama loses. They go to Texas A&M, and they lose on a last-second field goal. It's the first time That they lost to an unranked opponent in a hundred opportunities, which just speaks to Nick Saban's dominance that he's been able to put together in Tuscaloosa, but not in College Station, Texas. Very, very exciting game. And finally, one of his disciples from his coaching tree beat him. That had never happened before. Despite some close shaves, Jimbo Fisher finally gets the better of Nick Saban. Nice win for Iowa over Penn State. That was a top-five matchup in Iowa City. Close shave for Notre Dame. That was just a really exciting day of college football all around, and I think we can all agree, if you're a college football fan, the Georgia Bulldogs are number one, and they should be. They look really good. But I've got some really close friends who are big Dogs fans, They're excited, they're pumped up, they're feeling optimistic, but they're always looking over their shoulder about Alabama. And if Bama gets to the championship game against Georgia, if that happens, they just can't get over that hump. Could that finally change this year? Right now, the results would indicate yes, because I think the Bulldogs are by far the best team in college football. Long way to go, though. Extremely fun weekend, sports-wise. All right. The happy hour continues when we return. Also coming up later, the home stretch, the Bond movie. We'll give you my review. That's all coming up on the happy hour. It's the Guy Benson Show.
4: You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson.
2: As the happy hour continues here on this Monday. Thank you for listening. In our first hour, Mark Thiessen dropped by. He's our colleague here at Fox News, a columnist at The Washington Post, hosted the podcast, What the Hell is Going On? And we got into it on Afghanistan. He had a lot to say again, weighing in on some new stories that you need to hear about on that front. Here's part of my conversation with Mark Thiessen. I want to start with this before we get into some of the details on Afghanistan and a few of the developments there. The Republican National Committee just sent out from their research shop an email with a few facts. Here's one of them. President Biden, the commander in chief, has not answered a single question about Afghanistan in 31 days. Here's another one. Only one time in the last month has he fielded any questions at all on the border crisis. Two quick back-to-back questions in passing. And that's it. I mean, Afghanistan is still an unfolding crisis. There are thousands of Americans that are still trapped and stranded in that country. The border crisis, what, 400,000 gotaways since he took office. That's the number that we heard last week. Concern and projections that October might be the worst month yet of the border crisis. He's barely taken any questions on it at all. And he has conducted exactly one sit-down interview where there's an opportunity for like a real back and forth, follow up questions, probing like, well, let's, you know, let's come back and revisit that where it's not just this quick sort of, you know, blow by situation, a different setting. It's a different type of interview, which, you know, gets a little bit deeper sometimes than superficial questions. He has done that one time in the last 82 days. So getting on three months while all these crises are raging. Obviously, this is a strategy from the White House. Uh, You would think that Given his sinking approval ratings, especially with independents, they might want him out there defending himself. But it's hard to escape the conclusion that they have reached the conclusion that him doing so would not help, right?
3: Well, I mean, and that one interview was the one with George Stephanopoulos where he lied about uh, the fact that no one had advised him to keep 2,500 troops in Afghanistan in fact all of his military commanders testified they didn't they did they wouldn't say what they told the president but they said that their recommendations were always to keep to at least 2500 troops general milley even said up to 3500 troops uh, in Afghanistan so the one time he has done it it's been an absolute disaster for him that's uh, gone around his neck i mean look here's the reality the Quinnipiac poll last week not only is Biden's approval rating at 38% in that poll, which would have been bad even for Donald Trump, right? Uh, by Trump, by by the worst uh, period of the Trump years, he was underwater on every single issue: taxes, spending, uh, the border his role as commander in chief his foreign policy and even covid which was up until now has been his one his best issue even that he's two points underwater uh with the american people and worst of all 55% of the american people say he's incompetent i mean that is you know th- so if you're not willing to put your guy out there to take questions it's because you're afraid of confirming that <laughs> that suspicion mm-hmm. for the for the uh for the other 44 uh in the in the country So, yeah, of course, he's not taking questions because he doesn't have any answers.
2: The Quinnipiac poll is getting a lot of play and a lot of attention because the numbers are so gruesome for him. But if it were just an outlier survey, I'd be right there saying, well, you know, hold on. It's one poll. This is the trend, though. It has been across a whole bunch of different polls that has shown this type of erosion. Uh, I saw your colleague at the Washington Post, Henry Olson, he's written about independence. He said the numbers have gotten even worse among independent voters. And on his agenda, the president's agenda, build back better is what they call it. We keep hearing these assurances from the commentariat that this is a popular agenda. And yes, if you ask people, do you support a build back better agenda to spend money on these things? For the most part, the polling shows that a majority of Americans say yes. Other polls show when you start to dig in. On any details, especially some of the downsides or pay-fors, borrowed spending, tax increases, support falls pretty dramatically. And there's a new survey out yesterday from CBS News which asked people, do you believe that the Build Back Better multi-trillion dollar Democrat spending bill will help your family? Will it make it better for your family, things in general? Will it make no difference or will it make things worse? And the number who said that this – policy this proposal all of this spending and the tax and spend binge the number was 36 percent that said this would help their family and the rest said it would make no difference or make matters worse my full interview with mark teeson and the entirety of today's show start to finish is available on demand no charge to you absolutely free guy benson foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcast download subscribe leave us a rating Maybe a comment, if it's kind. We appreciate it. When we come back, the homestretch, 007 is back. We were so excited about it on Friday. Friday night, I went and saw the film. I have some strong feelings, and I will convey them when we come back.
4: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
2: Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. So during this segment on Friday afternoon, Friday evening... I mentioned that we had some dinner reservations later that evening. We're going to go have a bite to eat and then go watch the new James Bond film in Georgetown, just across the river from where we live. And so we did. Had a very nice dinner. Went to the theater. It was full. I think every seat was sold. Had my Coke Zero, of course. And settled in for a very long movie, which I knew Coming in. Like, I I saw in some of the reviews and just some of the takes online, like, hey, just a heads up, it's going to be long. And it was. And what can I say about No Time to Die? I have definitely some strong sentiments about it, but I cannot fully explain them to you without major spoilers, which I do not want to betray. I'll say this. The beginning of the movie was good. Like the first hour, I thought was really exciting. They had some callbacks. They had some old characters over the course of the Daniel Craig arc that were either referenced or made an appearance. I liked all of that. There was some really good action in Italy, there was some really exciting action in Cuba in some of these scenes. And then the second half of the movie, I did not love as much. I thought that the Bond villain was fine, Remy Malek. It was fine. Sort of pedestrian by James Bond standards, but perfectly acceptable. What I liked about Casino Royale, which was Daniel Craig's first, was that some of the tasks in front of Bond in that movie were manageable and not ridiculous. Like, oh, we've got to stop this airplane from getting blown up. We need to stop this weapons cartel from getting funding, and we're going to do that by winning a card game that's very high stakes at a casino, right? That's what James Bond had to do in that movie, as opposed to, oh, there's a laser pointed at Earth and everyone's going to die unless, you know, some of those more outlandish things. And I understand that is what James Bond has been for much of the existence of the character. And so this threat, if you will, was more of a return to that, the entire world hanging in the balance in some ways, right? The possibility of just unthinkable mass casualties and that kind of thing and Bond has to prevent the problem. And I, that, that is par for the course overall in the James Bond anthology. I'm not going to complain too much about that. If they had done a few things just a little bit differently, I would have said, you know, it's fine. It was a fine end to the Daniel Craig era. I'm still going to go with Casino Royale and then Skyfall as my two favorites, but this one was fine. There's one significant spoiler that's a little bit more on the personal side maybe for Bond that I'm not going to ruin for you. But I know it's a bit controversial among some people. I'm not too mad about it. I think it's at least kind of interesting. And then there is a gargantuan spoiler as well. At the very end of the movie, that is extremely controversial among fans and people are all fighting about it. So I tweeted my displeasure. I think it is bad. I think the ending was bad. I think it was just unacceptable what they did at the end of the movie. And other people say, no, no, it's a a brilliant conclusion to Daniel Craig and all this stuff. People are entitled to those opinions. You're not going to convince me that the ending of this movie was good or acceptable in my mind. And I had people flooding into my DMs, agreeing with me, disagreeing with me. And I'm not going to tell you – I could say just a handful of words and I think you would instantly understand why I'm upset as a fan of Bond and Daniel Craig as James Bond. But I'm not going to do it. You can go see it maybe at some time off in the distance where there's been sort of like a buffer zone. We could do trigger warnings and spoiler alerts and all of that and then talk about it. But it's too early in this film's release cycle for me to risk any of it. So I'm not going there. I'm just going to tell you I'm an unsatisfied fan. Very satisfied for the first half of the movie, kind of shrugging my shoulders for the second half, then mad about the end, which eclipsed everything else. That's my overall take. Now Dan, you watched this movie over the weekend as well. Am I way off base? No, I would
3: agree with you. I definitely enjoyed it. I'll give it like a solid B minus B in the realm of Bond movies. Um but like you said with the villain, I didn't like the end plot. I think it could have done more with it and it just wasn't believable. And it was but it was very sad to see, you know, the end of an era and I definitely teared up at a moment and I think you know when.
2: Okay, yeah. I mean We all knew it was going to be Daniel Craig's last movie as Bond, and there's this whole speculation now who's going to be next, and there are names being thrown out there, and I'll be interested to see who they cast. But I was hoping for something at the end of this era that would really put an exclamation point on what I think was a successful run for Daniel Craig, and what they decided to do, the choice that they made, I think was – not a good one I want to say unforgivable but I don't want to be too dramatic but it's close I got an all caps text from a friend's mother who went to go see it she's like are you kidding me I was like I know I know she's like that's what your tweet was about yes oh you're so right then other people like you're an idiot this is genius best Bond film ever okay uh I'm a definite no on that one definite no but whatever floats your boat, if that ending floats your boat, good for you. Good for you. Not for me. My boat is at the bottom of the ocean on that one. I think there was a boat that sank in this movie, actually. Or was that like a an oil rig that sank? I digress. Now, Producer Christine, you did not see any Bond movies this week. And I encourage you to watch a few of them. You did not. But you did, in fact, begin Squid Game, which is just growing in popularity, Quiet Wyatt finished the entire first season. I think it's almost certainly there's going to be a second. You can't have this big of a hit where they sort of tee up a second season and then not do it. I think it's sort of like a a money-making obvious thing that they're going to attempt. But Christine, how many episodes did you watch?
0: So we only watched two episodes, but I really, really liked it. Um, Also, I have to say if, uh not just ladies whoever is kind of squeamish or whatever and you know was a little worried about being scared what my husband did the the sainted bob is he watched a couple ahead of me so when we were watching he would say okay close your eyes right now and then he'd be like okay open them you're good you're good so but
2: could you understand what happened or were you like missing key things
0: no, he would tell me what happened, but he just okay. knew that uh, we don't we don't need cookie to get nightmares, which I did anyway you... about it, but
2: <laughs> Are you got nightmares from it?
0: Yeah, I had a dream that Dan was like one of the um players, like in the green jumpsuit.
2: Our Dan on our team was in yeah. your dream yeah. as part of Squid yep. Game.
0: Yep. Yeah.
2: It's kinda of scary. <laughs> but but I wasn't I'm almost offended.
0: No, no I know. <laughs> you were not Am
2: I not terrifying I enough, Christine, to make it no, into your I, have, I don't qualify for your night terrors? I'm hurt.
0: Plenty. Plenty of night terrors about this show and the work, trust me. <laughs> Many.
2: <laughs> so, did you um did you get a sense of where it was going or were you shocked by Red Light, Green Light?
0: Oh, re- oh gosh! Like never going to be able to hear that game. I hope Megan never plays <laughs> that game. Um, I was shocked by that, but I kind of knew where we was going. I actually have to say, at the end of the second episode, I was shocked. So, and Bobby keeps telling me it gets better and better, but he did say, and Wyatt told me this, like it's it's pretty morbid. So, uh, oh, yeah. I really, really like it though. I love the characters, especially not... the main guy.
2: Yeah, it's not uplifting. You're not going to be uplifted watching this this show. Did you do the dubbing or did you do subtitles? Oh, the dubbing. What did you do? We started with dubbing and then switched over because I could not handle it anymore, especially a few of the characters and their voices became so annoying, like the fake English voiceovers, that I said, "I, I can't do this. Can we please put on the original Korean and then the English subtitles? I've actually heard there's a controversy that the subtitles and the dubbing is not actually fully accurate to the actual Korean. That's a separate issue, but it it gives you the gist at the very least. I recommend the subtitles personally, although that makes it harder for you to turn away and close your eyes because you have to read to know what's happening. So maybe Cookie should stick with the dubbing, even though for me it became distractingly annoying, so I switched mid-series.
0: Yeah, no, I'm sticking with the dubbing. I think it also makes it a little uh, less serious because it is kind of humorous sometimes hearing these voices as they're talking about something pretty serious. So I like it. I have to say, like, if you, anybody out there, if you were a little squeamish or you weren't sure about it, definitely watch it. I have to say, I'm so excited that I'm in it now and you know, I'm part of the cool kids. So
2: well, it's number one in the world on Netflix which is pretty crazy. And again, the comparison that I'll make is Black Mirror plus Hunger Games plus Kill Bill. If that sounds appealing to you, go for it. If that sounds awful to you, then this is probably not a show for you. But again, Christine was very frightened and now she's taken the plunge and now she can't stop. Are you addicted enough, Christine, last question, that you're going to like put Megan to bed tonight and then go right back to Squid Game? Or are you not that hooked?
0: Oh, no, I would like to, What we were thinking is, um, yeah, we got it's tricky because you don't want Megan to walk in. Do you know what I'm saying? Or walk downstairs and like watch that at all. So we're trying to figure it out because remember, once Megan goes to bed, most nights, so does Cookie. So, and we don't want to be watching this right before I go to bed because that's mm. a no-no. So it's going to be tricky dilemmas. getting through. It's not, yeah, there's dilemmas here.
2: Yeah, and then also, for me, there were certain shows where you're like, all right, just one more, and there's a cliffhanger, and you cannot stop yourself from watching another one. Then you're up even later. That's how sometimes binge-watching goes. So now we've got every single member of the Guy Benson Show team watching and talking about Squid Game, and that's a nice distraction for me at least from talking more about James Bond. Two thumbs down if I'm Siskel and Ebert here. Not because it was a horrible movie overall, but I'm just, I can't get past the ending. I can't. You can send all your uh, hate mail to me if you'd like. You can DM me, Guy P. Benson, Twitter and Instagram. Tell me why I'm wrong or why I'm right. I'm often right, but not always. It's fair. Back here tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. Have a great evening. We will talk to you then. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at briankilmeadeshow.com.
4: From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.